Hi, and thanks so much for joining us once again for another of our Ruminant Nutrition-focused podcasts. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a New Zealand-based veterinarian and nutritionist who works for PGG Rights and Seeds based here in Lincoln in Canterbury. Hey, so look, if you're new to our podcasts, a very warm welcome to you. Or if you've been one of our frequent flyers, so to speak, great to have you back again to hear about another different topic relating to nutrition. In this, our latest podcast in our Room room podcast series, what we're going to be doing is working through some of the on-farm factors that contribute to challenges around when spring-calving dairy herds don't necessarily peak particularly well during late September or maybe into early October. Or if it's not so much that they're not peaking, maybe they've just taken forever uh, to, to actually reach peak production. Here in New Zealand, most of our spring calf dairy herds will be peaking around about now that we're releasing this podcast. So that's sort of about mid-October, um, maybe with a few exceptions, maybe further north where we'll reach peak milk solids production maybe earlier, say uh, mid to late September. So anyway, that's sort of where the peak normally happens in New Zealand seasonal calving dairy herds. What if we're taking ages to reach that peak? Or once you reach peak and start to come down the other side, what are the key factors that we need to look into if when you pull up your uh, lactation curve, your dairy production graph, and things aren't looking as good as previous seasons. Before we dive into a discussion around what happens with uh, how quickly we peak and then maybe how quickly we tumble down the other side with post-peak decline, that we're going to cover that topic in the next podcast to follow this one. First, what we need to do is kind of step back and take a, a bigger picture look at your lactation curve for the whole herd. Now you can easily find your lactation curve on your dairy company um, app on your phone or maybe if you're in the home office you can log in uh, on your laptop or just whatever works for you. How do we interpret your lactation curve? I guess that's the first starting point, hey? Hopefully all of you will know how to jump on and have a look at your lactation curve. Um, let's say you jump on, if you're a Fonterra supplier, you jump on farm source. The default production curve was usually just for a 10-day period. So you might have to jump in there and change the date settings. Just above the graph on, on farm source, you will see the date change. And it's easy with that particular um, software because you just click on the boxes that relate to each month. Click on that anywhere from June uh, through to let's say October now or right out to May if you want to look at previous seasons, whole season production. So yeah, just leave the default settings on the graph as kilograms milk solids on a whole herd basis or um, sometimes we need to look at the litres basis as well which will be a topic another day when we look at the differences between changes in litres and, and whole herd kilos of milk solids production. Another story another day. Right, let's first pull up the lactation curve, the production curve and obviously on the bottom or the horizontal axis on the graph is time related. So depending on what time series you've selected, that'll be, you know, it might be just monthly basis. And then on the left-hand uh, vertical axis, that's obviously your kilos of milk solids or what are the 
other units that you've pulled up there, like maybe litres. So let's imagine us that we're sitting together. Um, I'm sitting uh, with you at the kitchen table at your place, and we're having a look at your lactation curve, uh, production curve over your last two to three years. And then here in October, we're now looking at the season to date production curve overlaid on your previous seasons. So a pretty straightforward graph to have a look at. And when we're taking our helicopter view, what we're looking for is, it's called the area under the curve. What we want is a curve that's higher up, obviously showing higher production, because when we look at the area under the curve, that equates to whole herd milk solids production for the whole season. And then we can say, oh, we get to the end of a season, we haven't done as much whole herd milk solids production, then we can kind of analyse your production curve and figure out where are the missing milk solids, if you'd like. Hope that makes sense. So look, what we do is let's break down your whole herd lactation curve or production curve into four key parts. So it's easier kind of to bite off one part and have a look at whether you're reaching potential good production or not. Now, before we dive into these four parts of lactation curve, probably one key thing to say is that we're assuming that your cow numbers have been very similar from year to year to year, because obviously a very different lactation curve from year to year may well reflect you've got more cows than what you've had in previous years, or the other way around, you may have dropped cow numbers for whatever reason, although obviously sometimes fewer cows end up producing just as much milk as more cows do. It's another story another day too, isn't it? So bite-sized bits of this lactation curve. Let's first start look at the left-hand side of the curve, sitting looking at it, and that's the part of the curve between when you start to um, supply milk to the factory, from essentially from planned starter calving, and then when your herd reaches peak lactation. So I guess we'll say that's the first part of the curve that we look at. Another way of looking at that is that's the rate at which the herd production lifts from planned starter calving through to peak. And we'll cover off uh, things that can influence why that may, may not be looking as good as it should. Then obviously the second part of the curve, uh, or the graph that we're super interested in, is how high um, the cows peak at peak production. So again, wherever you may be farming, uh, it could be late September through to uh, mid or even perhaps later October peak right down south, depending on where you are. The third part of the lactation curve is one that uh, we're going to cover off about in the next podcast, but that's where we look at the rate at which the herd will drop down off peak or post-peak decline, starting from mid to late October or November, wherever you are, onwards, and when um, that crazy crash that quite often happens starts to slow down and then just drop away at a more sensible rate, hopefully after Christmas. And then the fourth and final part of the lactation curve that we're going to do a deep dive on in the next podcast will be looking at the tail end of your lactation curve, so your late season production and all of the various things that can influence late season milk production. And we'll explore ways that you can aim to uh, hopefully continue to produce milk very well and maintain good cash flow through that time of course not while compromising your cow body condition score as you head into late lactation. 
But yeah, so just to um, remind you, in this first podcast, we're going to focus on things that influence the rate at which milk solids production increases as you head to peak and how high that your herd may peak. We're going to first deep dive into that period from planned starter calving when you start to supply milk to the factory through to peak lactation. What we're looking for is whether the line on your lactation curve is a nice steep one going steeply up heading towards peak production or if on the other hand that that line on your lactation curve is a bit sort of mm, kind of flat heading through to a lower than ideal peak certainly compared to previous years. As far as all the things that influence this, I guess there's five big topics that we can kind of bite off to have a talk about as far as things that influence the rate at which uh, your supply of milk to the factory will increase and eventually what you will peak at. If we kick off with the first major reason why the lactation curve may be slower to lift uh, and get you heading towards peak production is, of course, determined by how well your mating went last year, or maybe didn't go so well, sadly. Clearly, if we've got a lot of cows still in the far-off uh, dry mob, or, or you've um, boxed in all your late calves in with your springers, and there's a lot of cows in there that aren't springing, well, when there's a calf inside, uh, obviously those girls will not yet be producing a whole heap of milk for you. So it's a given that when you're looking at a slow rise towards peak production, that the first thing we're going to have a look at uh, is we, how quickly the cows were calving and breaking that down into age groups that you can do through Minder and really drill into just how has calving rate been versus other years. And again, if you've got multiple years loaded on your graph so you can see from year to year to year what we're looking for is differences in calving rate. And again, that's where we, we jump out of farm source and into Minder that hopefully you've got good records in there to understand your calving rate and what might have not necessarily gone so right for you at mating last year. And we are going to upload a couple of podcasts about mating efficiency and pasture-based systems, so stay tuned for that. Aside from calving rate, if we put that aside and say, oh, look, actually, we, we looked at Minder and, and the calving rate was very similar to previous years, so we sort of dismissed that. What are some other things that can sometimes cause cows to not fire, I suppose, not to get the milk production going very, very well in early lactation. Well, the second uh, challenge on our list of reasons why cows take a while to fire in early lactation and produce well for you is, of course, the basics around cow body condition score. And you'll all be very aware of the standard New Zealand industry recommendations that we like cows, mixed age cows, that's our older girls, to be at a decent five condition score on the New Zealand scale, which differs from overseas in, in, in that the New Zealand scale uh, runs from 1 to 10 versus uh, the 1 to 5 scale and the 1 to 8 scale elsewhere around uh, the world. So back to our condition score 5 for mixed age cows, that's for cows sort of older than um, 4, they're 4 and above, but for our 2 and 3 year olds, the New Zealand recommendation is for a 5.5 body condition score for these younger girls. In terms of if cows are lighter than condition score 5 for your mixed age or 5.5 for your younger cows, we start to miss out on milk solids production, particularly in early lactation. 
hey, there's a lot of rules of thumbs around um, how much you lose on milk solids if the cows are a bit light. But say if cows are calving at a condition score four, heaven forbid none of our listeners will be calving at a condition score four, but the numbers that have been done over the years show that a cow that calves at a condition score four versus a condition score five will produce about 15 kilos less milk solids um, than a cow at a good condition, a condition score five. And of course, that's not also taking into account the reproductive benefits of cows calving in good condition. So a condition score four is likely to be probably submitted for mating probably upwards of at least 10 days later, if not more than a well-conditioned cow. So it's a given that when we're looking at why haven't the herd produced as much uh, milk in early lactation, it may be that the cows are too light in body condition score. But hey, like anything in life, when there's too much of a good thing and if we overcook the cows, in other words, they're a little bit too roly-poly and you're thinking, you know, like you carry over cows for those that carry cows through to give them a second chance at re-entering the herd. Quite often those are rather fat. When we get upwards of a condition score 6 on the New Zealand scale or even 6.5 or more, ironically, those cows will produce potentially a lot of milk and there's been some work done quite some time ago showing that fat carryovers actually do produce a lot of milk but they get very thin very quickly because they're at risk of a condition called ketosis that we'll talk about shortly. So they may put a fair bit of milk in the vat but the other way around they may get so unwell with ketosis that they lose their appetite and they don't end up ultimately long-term putting a lot of milk in the vat for you. So getting your condition score right uh, at the point of calving is a key thing to drive effective early season milk solids production. Point number three, moving along, another reason that we need to consider why cows don't necessarily produce well in early lactation well, this is where some of the animal health things can start to enter the equation and contribute to our concerns. If a herd has an unresolved problem of either clinical metabolic disease that you know about, downer cows, cows losing too much weight too quickly, or indeed subclinical metabolic disease that perhaps you only find when your vets do some routine blood testing work, for example, um, during or just after calving or perhaps pre-mating, these issues around subclinical or clinical metabolic disease may well be costing you valuable kilos of milk solids not being produced, as well as potentially some reproductive challenges that we will cover in a later podcast. So the minerals that are most often linked into metabolic disease are things that you'll be familiar with, such as calcium, magnesium, phosphorus are big ones and these minerals can mess with things in two different ways. If we look firstly at for example magnesium and phosphorus now if they are low in the diet the rumen, yeah the rumen, we're not talking about the cow yet, the rumen microbes, all those billions of bacteria and and protozoa and all these other things all swirling around in there. Some of the bacteria that are needed to digest fibre are very reliant on the presence of magnesium and phosphorus inside the rumen fluid. So we may see a reduction in appetite and dry matter intake if we're very low 
and magnesium and phosphorus because the cellulolytics, the bacteria that break down the cellulose and, and the fibre, need those uh, minerals to digest feeds. So that's the number one problem. And then second up, of course, as you'll be more familiar with, unfortunately, um, from year to year, is that if we have very low levels of dietary magnesium and phosphorus, not only for the rumen but for the cow, or with low levels of dietary calcium and typically high levels of potassium like we get on our ryegrass-dominant spring pastures, will wreak havoc with the incidence of metabolic disease in our cows, both before sometimes, through and after calving, which all of you will be familiar with. So when we say metabolic disease, for those of you less familiar with it, we'll define metabolic disease as it relates to cows in early to mid-lactation. And usually we've got a, a combination, ironically, of low blood calcium, low magnesium, and sometimes the condition called ketosis, which is low blood glucose, which contributes to most of our clinical signs, combined in some but not all cases with elevated levels of blood ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate on some of your lab results, which is where the term ketosis comes from, too many ketones in the blood. Now, when we have issues of metabolic disease, we can sometimes have a bit of a messy, if you like, combination of all three conditions happening together. And that said, it might still just simply present with the occasional downer cow with apparent milk fever, you know, heads back on her flank, she's got the bend in her neck and that. And we treat her with, say, straight calcium boroglucanate and she bounces up and away. But if she goes down again, uh, then we start to wonder if there's some other things going on, low magnesium, um, ketosis, or even something like rumen acidosis. But an another story another day about those downer cows. So these metabolic cows might show up um, as both downer cows and your colostrum mob or maybe when they've first gone into the milkers. But sometimes now we're heading into mating, you pick up cows that are actually bulling and they're more likely to go down with like a metabolic disease issue when they're on heat for a range of reasons due to high levels of estrogen in the blood, um, that they're more interested in bulling and interacting with other cows than they are in eating. So their net intake of nutrients will reduce while they're um, showing a lot of signs of estrus. Other things you may see with uh, metabolic disease that may feed into where are your missing milk solids can sometimes be seen as a lot of the cows moving too much body condition off their backs, and that's a condition suggestive of ketosis. Or if the odd cow suddenly is just found dead, she might be found dead um, in the laneway walking up to milking with grass still in her mouth um, or dying in the yard or just out in the paddock particularly if there's been a cold southerly change come through, and that might suggest you've got an issue of low blood magnesium. So with all this metabolic issues going on, clearly don't listen to your podcast for your best advice. Instead, you need to talk to your vet to check your herd out, take bloods, assess some of the cows, both any clinically affected cows or just going for a walk through the herds, and as well, ideally, some pasture and feed samples and the like to look at. Sometimes with blood tests and feed testings, we'll find some subclinical metabolic issues that there's no sign of anything in the cows, but we'll pick up other things that are kind of bubbling under the surface. And also subtle things such as low blood phosphorus. And if you match that up with low phosphorus feeds, sometimes on our milking platforms, the pastures have high ulcers and peas and therefore shouldn't be phosphorus deficient, but oddly, sometimes they can be. And that will limit appetite as well through that mechanism of the rumen not functioning properly, the rumen microbes not digesting well. 
So metabolic problems aren't always just limited to clinical disease. Quite often subclinically things are happening and you can talk to your vet uh, or your qualified ruminant nutritionist about that in more detail. So I've talked a lot about metabolic disease and you're probably saying, oh, Charlotte, you've gone totally off track here. What are you talking about? Coming back to what the podcast is definitely about is understanding why milk production may be behind compared to other years, slow to reach peak and maybe the peak's down. Long story short about this metabolic stuff is if we haven't identified and resolved metabolic disease issues, cows will simply not eat to appetite. And if they haven't got that same insane, crazy drive to eat a lot of feed like our dairy cows have been bred to do, they'll likely not produce as much milk. Or if they manage from reasons of high genetic merit to keep producing milk, they'll likely support that production by taking too much body condition off their backs, which isn't ideal. So we're always looking for evidence of subclinical metabolic disease when we're looking at a herd that is not peaking or rising to peak particularly quickly, mainly because we want to get them producing better, but also if we've got an unresolved metabolic disease issue, we're going to have some issues heading into mating as well. That We'll cover that another day. So again, the horse is bolted this year, but about while things are still fresh in your mind, reviewing with your veterinarian or your qualified nutritionist, at doing a debrief on how did the metabolic uh, disease incidents work for you this year? Are there ways to improve it? Because if we can reduce incidence of subclinical metabolic disease, we will improve appetite of cows and potentially improve aspects of reproductive performance. So it's probably worth doing a debrief now, getting as much information into mind as you can, maybe that you don't normally get in there, or just simply writing some facts and figures down around things like incidence of metabolic disease, retained membranes, assisted carvings, numbers of stillbirths, etc., that we can then use as what we call proxies of a suggestion you've had some subclinical metabolic disease. Not limited to metabolic disease, but highly suggestive in some cases if we rule out other causes. And remembering that metabolic disease through calving as a topic was discussed in our 10th podcast titled Transition Feeding of Dairy Cows Through Calving, Keeping Cows Well. And that featured uh, veterinarian Laura Patty. Uh, who ran us through some of the aspects around planning to reduce risk of metabolic disease. But again, a short disclaimer there, any podcasts, ours or others, are never designed to replace the advice and skill set of your very own uh, veterinarian and or qualified nutritionist. So it'll be likely you'd need to do a little bit of detective work to look for the reasons why you have a higher rate uh, than ideal of metabolic diseases and it's really worth leaning into this as a topic because of the impacts that subclinical metabolic disease have both on early season production, milk production, but also reproductive performance. So the number four factor that influences just how steep your milk production curve is heading up into peak production is obviously first the boring feed budget. Yes, uh, the supply of feed versus the demand. So Look, quite sincerely, it's it's about just having a look at are there any indications based on what you recall from earlier in the spring 
about whether you hit any feed pinches or deficits that might have impacted and put a bit of a dent in your curve. And usually if you've run out of feed or you've had snow on the ground for a couple of days, you'll see quite a dip in your curve through that time. So we can trace that back to the date that something might have happened. Quite often when we're looking at reasons why cows don't produce well in early lactation and or perhaps they have reproductive issues, quite often when we're thinking back, um, if, if I haven't been on farm with you in early lactation and you go, but yeah, but we were always hitting residuals. You know, we were 15, 15, 50 um, kilos dry matter residuals. So the cows weren't going without feed. What was going on? Just remember, if your cows have an issue of poor appetite, for particularly for metabolic disease that we talked about, um, these cows may not have the drive to eat so therefore, if you're saying we're sure we're feeding them well on the basis of high post-grazing residuals being left behind, just remember sometimes we need to look at have we got an appetite problem? You're feeding them really well to the absolute best of your ability, but they're not consuming it for whatever reason. And again, you go back to talk to your vet uh, or qualified nutritionist about that. Energy is the first limiting nutrient for almost all situations with cows calving down and that's a combination perhaps of having a feed deficit or an event where cows couldn't reach grass such as snow on the ground or we've had issues with grass quality or the quality of supplement, supplementary feeds where the, the energy density isn't where it needs to be. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, about some tips and tricks about how to manage this. But essentially we may have a year where your autumn or winter safe pasture has grown particularly well in June and then crashed out in July and got frosted, particularly for those of us down south down here. And you end up with not a lot of green material and a lot of thatch and, and dead stuff at the base. So the energy density of that grass won't be as good for early calving cows as uh, a year when you have a, a good quality and amount of green material carried through. Similarly, if you're a baleage feeder and almost all years your baleage has been wonderful quality, but through no fault of your own you had to bale up some not so good stuff last year, then that baleage not only won't be as tasty for the cows to eat, but the energy density will not be there either. So remembering that energy density or total amount of energy consumed by the cow is the number one reason from a nutritional point of view, aside from the amount of feed on offer, that will reduce the rapid rise as cows calve and head into peak lactation. If you have higher than planned average pasture cover at planned starter calving, some of the paddocks at the top of your pasture wedge will likely be starting to tip over potentially and not having as much green leaf uh, present as normal and there may be more fibre present as NDF and ADF than normal so the whole thing's less energy and that's going to cost us early season uh, milk solids production. And of course, if milkers have to chew down like real hard to, to hit your target post-grazing residuals, these milkers just might have to work a bit too hard and either um, they're not ingesting enough energy because they've got a bulk of feed sitting in the room and digesting only slowly, or that they mobilise too much back fat to fill the vat for you. Um, yeah, either way, whichever they go, they'll either stay a bit fat and not produce much milk if it's really poor quality standing pasture or otherwise they'll fill the vat for you and get real thin. So ideally if you've got your later calving dries around uh, when the early calvers are calving, sometimes a bit of a leader follower system is handy here where you can 
use milkers to get down to sort of 18 or 1900 um, residuals and then put your lates in to, and put them to work because they're probably getting too fat anyway. And if they haven't carved yet, then they can still work quite hard, uh, do a bit of Jenny Craig to to get their body condition score um, down a bit or um, certainly to not let them get any fatter. And then, of course, and this is something we haven't talked about earlier in this podcast, was obviously when we have awful weather like we've had this year, 2022, and when we have these awful, dull, dreary, wet and miserable conditions just that never let up, there's no sunshine, well, clearly it's not good for man or woman or beast. None of us like that weather, but in many cases, and this season too, Cows are likely to be behind target milk solids production compared to our nice, warm and sunny calving seasons. And quite often when you're looking at um, your number of seasons on your lactation curve overlaid on top of each other on your phone or on your laptop, that has a lot to answer for a slow uh, rate and ultimately a lower than ideal target peak milk solids production compared to better seasons. So apart from the fact that cows love, just like us, sun on our backs, there's obviously a range of other factors in play here. First up, from a nutritional point of view, pastures under these conditions will contain lower levels of water-soluble carbohydrates or sugars compared to other years. So yeah, for sure the rumen will still extract quite a lot of energy from um, the microbes furiously digesting the fibre in your grass. But oh my goodness, uh, those rumen microbes, they don't have teeth, but they might as well have a sweet tooth because they do miss their sugars in those conditions. And quite often this will show up, and we'll do a separate podcast about this, as lower milk protein and a lower than ideal milk protein to fat ratio compared to other years but we'll talk about interpretation of protein to fat ratios in your milk but you don't want to look at it in isolation you'd also need to just click through um, the different views on your your app uh, or on your laptop and look at protein and fat because obviously the key driver of low protein to fat ratios when the weather is miserable and wet and overcast is low protein and slightly higher fat but then Protein to fat ratios can be lower than normal if, for example, you're feeding palm kernel this year when you haven't fed it before in other years. So more about that in another podcast. Another aspect around why in these wet, dreary, miserable years do uh, cows struggle to lift in milk production and head towards peak production is that the pasture is on average uh, containing lower dry matter percent. So uh, and this can be quite a bit lower than usual. And it could be as low as 8 or even 9% dry matter. Now, when you think about it, a glass of milk contains 12.5% dry matter of lactase protein, fat and a bit of ash. <laughs> Goodness, this grass has got less dry matter in it than a glass of milk. It's crazy. And these low dry matter percents don't normally restrict energy intake for herds that are doing an average level of production, maybe 360, 370 kilos of milk solids, and for farms that they're not on a big farm, so the cows don't walk much, they're not on the yard for very long. Under those situations, cows can normally still consume enough of this wet feed. However, if you're a higher performance farm, your cows are doing much higher per cow production, 
Perhaps you're running larger herds where cows spend quite a bit of time on concrete every day, perhaps waiting to be milked, and all the walking distances are quite a long way, such that cows might be a bit limited for the time that they have to graze. That's when low dry matter percent may start to become an issue because cows on average only are able to take about 32 to 34,000 bites per day and every bite of grass, if it only contains a low amount of dry matter, those cows may not be able to bite and consume enough feed to uh, consume enough energy to support early season milk production. So yeah, lower producing herds that aren't off um, pasture for long periods of time are probably going to be okay with lower dry matter percents. But higher performing herds and those that walk longer distances or are in big herds of five to six hundred cows in one mob, they may struggle to eat enough feed when the dry matter percent's very low. Other things that's happening with the sloppy, um, dry, low dry matter feed, low sugar feed um, and this dull overcast spring weather is that the protein quality in pasture can change with dull overcast conditions. And when that's happening, we end up with more of what we call NPN or non-protein nitrogen in the diet than when the weather is warm and sunny and the plants are actively converting non-protein nitrogen into true plant proteins. So potentially, depending on what else is in the diet, these high NPN compounds might not be used quite as efficiently by cows compared to true plant proteins to make milk protein. And this can end up appearing uh, as high milk urea compared to years when milk urea is lower when the weather conditions are nicer. And of course the other thing with this rubbishy weather is that cows are just like us, they hate it, wet cold windy weather and they can't pull on all their wet weather gear so in turn they respond from a behavioural point of view by uh, protecting their heads, they don't like driving rain into their heads and they'll turn their bums around into the cold weather and won't have their heads down grazing quite as much. And of course, more of that yummy pasture that you've um, lovingly grown for them gets pugged into, into the dirt and utilisation of pastures reduced. So we may think our pre-grazing covers are adequate to match the demands based on our current grazing rotation. In fact, what they're actually eating down the throat is less than what we'd plan for. So all of these things, wet, cold springs, will certainly result in herds, sadly, that are slower to reach peak production. And if the weather just won't let up, uh, obviously they may not peak as high. And we'll cover in the next episode about the extent of post-peak decline in that these wet, cold weathers, quite often finally when the sun comes out, these ryegrass plants are quite stressed and quite often they'll throw up seed head, depending on how far into October you are, and we end up with a mass of quite short, um, seedy stuff instead of leaf uh, once things do dry out. But we'll talk more about that in the next podcast. A common question, and we covered this briefly in the previous podcast about milk urea in early lactation, is of course dietary protein in early lactation. And if we do have those higher than typical uh, pasture covers that we just said before, you know, because you've grown a lot and then it's got frosted and there's not much green material, remembering that in high pasture covers, it's not only energy that can potentially become limiting, but also protein and in fact other things like phosphorus. And if there's not a lot of green material there and just a lot of stemmy thatch, 
protein may start to become limiting, particularly if it's paired up with lower protein feeds. Or, uh, we've talked a lot about pasture, how about if you're on a higher input farm, maybe a system four or system five, and during early lactation you're feeding a diet that contains quite a lot of low protein feeds, such as, uh, I guess, maize silage, corn silage for overseas listeners, uh, lifted fodder beet bulbs uh, or sugar beet bulbs. Yes, that's a thing. Again, for overseas listeners, that's what we do occasionally here in New Zealand. Or if you are putting feed grade molasses on and other types of low protein feeds, you'll have a heap of energy going into the system and the cows will not be limited for their ability to produce milk on the basis of energy. However, they're actually switching it over so that protein and amino acids become the first limiting nutrients, whereas the cows have got a heap of energy. So what we've done here is we've switched the standard issue for New Zealand pasture-fed cows where dietary energy intake is almost always what we call the first limiting nutrient. Instead, we've flipped that over to uh, protein has become the first limiting nutrient. So what do you reckon cows do if they have a heap of energy coming from maize silage, lifted fodder beet bulbs, uh, molasses and stuff in early lactation, but protein is starting to limit production? What do cows normally do? Well, it depends very much on their genetic background and how strong their drive to produce milk is. And that's a genetic thing, a lot of between cow variation to do with levels of growth hormone, uh, bovine somatotropin in the blood. But cows that have a strong drive to milk that are deficient in protein may still produce milk, but they'll strip a lot of condition off, even to the point they start to mobilise body protein and they'll get quite thin. On the other hand, other herds, depending on the genetic merit and the genetic makeup, will, in the face of a protein deficiency during early lactation, go fat. They won't produce a lot of milk, so your your um, milk production curve will look a lot flatter, both in terms of that period from calving through to peak lactation, and they may peak lower than what you'd normally expect. But oh my goodness, these cows will look amazing. They'll look fat and sleek and happy, just not driving as much milk. So remembering that it can go one or two ways. They can either still produce milk with a low protein diet and look quite thin, or uh, in more likely cases, we'll see some beautifully conditioned cows that just don't tend to uh, fill up the vat as much. So these fatter cows that don't peak as well, there's, I guess, you know, it's like the glass half full approach is that whilst they won't peak as well, they'll be in better condition score. And if you're a herd that's battling with poor reproductive performance, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And if they stay in better condition, hopefully that you may get more days in milk after Christmas. And we'll cover these, some of these options in the next podcast about how to get a, a more sustainable milk production post-Christmas and getting a long tail of lactation. Having said that, if we have a low peak through low protein intakes and then we combine that with a massive crash or, or big post-peak decline in milk solids production during say November and December that could end up costing you a huge amount of milk production foregone or even if some of these low protein um, diets get cows so fat they start to drive themselves off after Christmas so that's not ideal either so I guess summing up 
on low levels of dietary protein. We've acknowledged that low protein through to peak production can be potentially useful to, to a point if you're trying to actively protect cow body condition and early lactation. But yeah, too much of a good thing. And if it's too low, we end up with fat roly-poly cows that look stunning but don't pay the bills with milk production. So yes, we can strategically use low-protein diets if you're in a system 4-5 um, that you can make that work. But we do need to be careful because if you have a rapid post-peak decline combined with a low peak, you may end up really foregoing a lot of milk. So I think if you want to use low-protein diets strategically to preserve cow condition for reproductive reasons or whatever... I'd strongly recommend that you um, do so with some really good input with a, a qualified ruminant nutritionist who knows what they're doing so that you don't end up risking losing your peak and then your subsequent production if you have a big post-peak decline. So if we get uh, an issue of you're seeing very well-conditioned cows that indeed you are very proud of um, on low-protein diets but you're also looking perplexed at your production curve and they're just not lifting in production as they should, we probably need to have a real hard look at the types of feed in the diet um, combined with feed testing of pasture, for example, particularly if the pasture is, is a bit taller than it normally is and it's got, you know, post-grazing, you can see more white than green where the cows have been right down to the base of the, um, the tiller of the ryegrass plant. And in some cases, you may need to step in with an additional protein source in the diet but I'd strongly recommend that you seek some uh, some clever advice from some people that really know what they're talking about, about putting protein in an early lactation, because it's better that you do some feed testing, run it through your nutritionist's feed formulation program, and make sure we've got this absolutely right. And of course, the previous uh, podcast that we talked about milk urea, you can also use milk urea to... Hmm, explore the protein uh, status of your cows in early lactation, but as we discussed in that podcast, be careful. Sometimes you can have adequate protein in the diet and yet milk urea levels are low in early lactation. So have a listen to milk urea if you want to know more about that. We don't recommend that you diagnose protein deficiency in early lactation simply based on milk urea. Because if we put, uh, say for example, soybean meal or even canola meal into early lactation cows where energy is limiting, cows may respond to that um, additional high quality amino acids by producing lots of milk, which so we solve that early lactation slow to peak issue. But oh my goodness, if there's not a matching amount of adequate energy, cows can respond to those protein meals by losing too much condition. So we fix your slow rise to milk production. So we go, yay, your lactation curve's picked up and, you know, you're starting to get close to, to overflowing the vat and life is good and, and the milk check's going to be coming in. But all of a sudden the cows are too light and we may compromise not only the submission rate during um, the first six weeks of mating, but also ironically conception rate depending on at what point between calving and mating that you put protein meals in. So please do seek advice on that. Don't just think that someone next door saw a good milk response to a protein meal um, and you'll put it in too. Just, just be careful about that. Moving on to the fifth point around where are your missing milk solids um, through to peak production would of course be influenced by milking frequency. So I guess over the last 10 to 15 years, a lot's changed in New Zealand and, and a lot of work has been done and a lot of you have no doubt had a good go yourself at changing milking frequency 
either in early or late lactation. So it may be that you are doing some once-a-day milking for a raft of reasons, maybe for an early lactation, trying to promote some mating success, maybe in all cows, your lighter cows, your younger cows particularly. Maybe you've chosen just to keep your first and maybe second calves on once a day for longer than usual. Or maybe uh, you're one of the many people now that have invested in, I guess, what we, whatever we call it, cow wearable technologies such as um, rumination collars, tags that are able to measure rumination. And maybe you're once a day in cows for longer than normal um, on the basis of waiting until cows have reached, on an individual basis, uh, set thresholds for acceptable amounts of rumination before you put them on twice a day. So, look, the impact of once a day milking on how much an individual cow will produce milk-wise and therefore ultimately how much your curve might look different in shape uh, with once a day milking and early lactation depends on a heap of things, including the genetic merit of the cow, the age of the cow, her current body condition score the type of feeds in front of her that we've already touched on briefly, and of course how long the cow stays on once a day. The longer on average she stays on once a day, the more milk that we'll miss out on uh, during the uh, overall lactation period for that season. That said, remembering if a once a day cow uh, continues to eat really well on once a day, and she does indeed drop the amount of milk that she's putting in the vat for you. don't know how much, depends on all those factors, but let's say maybe 10 to 15%. Remember that that energy that's going in that's no longer going into milk solids means that she will be looking after her body condition a whole lot better, hopefully. So she may not peak as well for you, but whoa, that extra condition means a couple of good things. Like first up, Likely she'll have a much better chance at not only um, being put up, hopefully during the first round of AI, but um, certainly getting in calf to AI in first or second rounds. She's probably less likely going to have to need a cedar. And depending on when she's on once a day and for how long, she may well have better conception success. So you may forego some milk pre-peak or a little bit at peak, but chances are there's some benefits. And of course, the other bonus of better condition score if we do some early lactation once a day milking is potentially more days in milk later in lactation, mainly because you don't have to start drying off cows in late summer or early uh, autumn because they're too thin, because in fact they've carried better condition through from their early lactation once a day milking. Once a day milking, which cows, for how long, and all those things... I guess we look at it as a very personal decision that, that only you can make if in a position of seniority to make those level of decisions. And it may be you choose to once a day milk one year because the weather's been absolutely foul and cows are a little lighter than what you'd normally like. And this is why the benefits of doing individual cow body condition scoring at key times of the year, and in this case with early lactation, we're thinking pre-calving and potentially pre-mating. So you can actually make a a measured decision about what to do about twice a day or once a day. But obviously you discuss this with, you know, you may be share milking your farm owner or you uh, discuss it with your veterinarian or farm consultant or qualified nutritionist before making big decisions about big numbers of cows going on once a day. But of course it is a personal decision and if it means lifestyle and um, looking after your well-being and everything then once a day falls out of the financial and does actually come on to your well-being too. 
And lastly, just a few other things that can uh, result in cows not eating to appetite and therefore not producing well in early lactation through to peak. Wow, just to rattle through a list of things here that it may be uh, in shed feeding systems, the grains not being processed adequately, uh, and a lot's coming through in the dung. That's a lot of wasted energy. So there goes a bit of milk response for you. On the topic of grain, it may be, and it's just something to be watching this year in New Zealand after a, a wet uh, harvest of grain last summer and autumn was that if we had high moisture grain that spoiled a bit in the silo through the winter, if the grain's coming out and it's a bit musty, smells a bit off, essentially that the uh, the volatile compounds that come off that musty, spoiled grain is less tasty for the cow and you may see issues of building up of milled or, or processed grain in the in-shed feeding system more than what you'd normally expect. As well, poor quality silages that don't smell particularly good. You know, if you can smell ammonia on it, uh, which is a proxy or an indicator for presence of other things like amines that that cows don't like, uh, that'll put them off and they'll waste more in the paddock. Or, in fact, a fermentation that's set up that may be a butyrate-type fermentation or the vinegary acetate fermentations that cows on average don't like. So have a look at your silage quality, how much has been wasted in the paddock, even if it has been wet conditions, it may also be the silage does not smell too good. Essentially anything that puts cows off eating will obviously um, stop cows from quickly reaching peak lactation. I guess it's a time of year in early lactation. Out of necessity, we typically will put feed additives either into stock drinking water through an inline dispenser or added to uh, perhaps silages or dusting on the pasture. And of course, with feed additives, often there's too much of a good thing. Uh, For example, if we put very high rates of magnesium chloride uh, into stock water, it makes it quite bitter. So unless you're masking that with some flavouring agents, uh, you may back cows off from drinking water and if they get the dry horrors and when they get the dry horrors they won't eat to appetite so be careful with overzealous use of additives to the water Uh, for example say magnesium sulfate is not quite as bitter as mag chloride but obviously only contains 10% magnesium versus 12 so you have to rejig your maths if you change your magnesium source to get a tastier water and of course, things like too many additives, say in-shed feeding system, you, you understand the cows are low in calcium, you've been told by your vet, so you try and uh, dump in a lot of lime flour and it just turns into a big white cloud that puts cows off from eating grain. So yeah, but sometimes too much of a good thing, we mean well, but sometimes additives can be an issue. So you can talk to your vet uh, or nutritionist about how to best get uh, additives in. And of course, while we're on the topic of stock water, we've all seen the dramatic effects on milk production when cows go into a paddock where you've got a leak and there's no water or it's further down the farm and the diameter of the water pipe is too narrow, uh, you know, too small to supply a big herd and they run out. So you've all seen the dips in the following days pick up in the vat, that's for sure. So it's a given that even during early lactation when feeds are often quite lush and containing a lot of water, that we must provide cows with plenty of fresh, lovely, clean water to support that early season big lift and demands for water to support cows as they head through to peak lactation. Well, look, we're going to wrap this podcast up now and we'll pick up part two around this pot, uh, the topic of, I guess, where are your missing milk solids? Why aren't cows producing as well as they should at the four key parts of the lactation curve? And we will move in part two 
to cover off things that influence milk solids responses by cows during the period of post-peak decline, which is a real challenge for ryegrass-based systems for us here in New Zealand. So we'll cover that in quite a bit of detail. And then, of course, we'll move on to discussing all about a long, late lactation to keep the milk check coming in uh, in late lactation, but of course at the same time making sure we don't milk on for too long so we end up with cow condition score deficits that then feed through to missing milk solids and early lactation next season. So we can't really look at one season in isolation from the other. Well, look, we've covered some of the things or the reasons why cows don't produce well or peak well in early lactation and there's a very good chance we have missed out a lot of things. We've, we've avoided the animal health issues. It's a given that mastitis pushes down milk solids, lame cows don't milk well, etc. So that said, we'd love to hear from you uh, if you have some other tips and tricks that have worked really well for you for lifting early season spring production at your place. Podcasts always sound a bit one-sided, but would love instead to be discussing it with you um, one-on-one about how to solve it at your place, but that's not easily the case on a podcast. So whatever works well for you, please head over to the Room and Room Facebook group. Hopefully you're already a member, or if not, join up. And we'd love to have you post some ideas about what's worked well for you um, in previous springs or this spring particularly. So I hope you can tune in and listen in to part two of the podcasts about milk solids responses at different stages of lactation. But in the meantime, keep on keeping well at your place. Uh, Hope that mating is looking like it's going to be going well or is in fact going well. And again, we'll cover more things to do uh, with nutrition and mating at a later podcast. On behalf of myself, Charlotte Westwood, and of course our sponsors, PGG Rights and Seeds, we'd like to say once again thanks heaps for listening into our most recent podcast. Once again, we also hope uh, that the content in this podcast has been somewhat helpful as you look for ways to ramp up your early season milk solids production. And just one more thing about the Facebook group, The Room and Room. Please do head over there for more information about all things to do with ruminant nutrition or to uh, ask questions of the community there. There's almost 6,300 members in there now. And indeed to post your own experiences around all things to do with ruminant nutrition. Thanks again for tuning in. Do have an amazing day. Cheers. Cheers.